Well, good morning. Let me get a couple of things out of the way. I had a minor injury yesterday, so while I'm giving you thumbs up, know that I am proud of you and I support you in almost all that you do if it leads you towards Christ. Just going to tell you now, it hurt, it still hurts now, ready to move forward. We good? Hey, in, in a related note, um, it's an interesting sermon illustration when one hurts themselves, especially in the condition that I did. So, you know, when you, when you have a major cut or, or a wound, you want to dress the wound accordingly, right? Uh, because if, you're, if you don't, then, then bad things happen. So you get infections and, and the little thing gets into be even worse and stuff too. So uh, living with a nurse, um, I was so, I, I got to witness bedside manner this morning. It was awesome uh, because I, I'm right-handed and it's my right thumb. And, and so as we got up, I said, listen, I, I need some, some help dressing uh, this, this wound. And she says, great, let's get some peroxide. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to kill me, right? Uh, but, but she's wonderful because she diluted it with water and, and, and it wasn't as bad. Uh, I said, but really, I mean, that's great. No, I'm glad that we got to do this, but I actually need help buttoning my shirt. Because um, my plan was I was going to button it on the bed and then pull it over, right? Um, because I, I started noticing I only got like two pullover shirts um, that, that, that I didn't want to wear today. And so I was so grateful that she helped me dress this morning. And so if you wonder, does my wife dress me funny, you know, you can ask her. I don't know. Uh, but but it's, it's, it's nice. And, and so bringing that into what we're talking about this morning, um, I want you to think about for a moment, because I, I love our church. I love the simplicity of our church. I love the relaxed nature of our church. Uh, I love that, that we really, and I've told people this, there, if there were three words to describe our church, I would say real simple people. Uh, that, that's who we are. That's, that's what we value. That's, that's the, the things that, that, that we look at. We don't look at all of those things. But I have to be honest with you, and I hope you'll be honest with me this morning too, is, is there's, there's, there is a way that we dress for different occasions, isn't there? There's a way that we dress, and, and some of us are a little bit older. We remember that there was a way that we dress for church, right? And, and, and we remember the deacons meetings and the Wednesday nights and the, the, the pastor, he didn't wear a tie this morning, and we may have to get rid of him. Right, I mean, the carpet not being red anymore and going to blue—that was that was major crisis in the in the in the Baptist church, you know. But now he's not wearing, of course. And then things kind of shifted in the the early two thousands when the pastor showed up in suit and tie. It's like who who got fired, right? Like like who's resigning this morning? Okay, uh, in this church, if I showed up in a suit and tie, y'all would freak out, um, wouldn't you? You might even be surprised I own a suit and tie, right? I, I do. Um, I look great in it, too, by the way. I just want to let you know that. Um, but, but it's reserved for special occasions. Uh, and we do. We dress differently for different occasions, don't we? Um, I, I, I appreciate you all. I don't know that any of you would show up at a wedding dressed like you are today. You might. And I would prefer it actually be an awesome wedding, right? I performed a ceremony. No kidding flip-flops and a pair of shorts at the bottom of a zipline dress. Those people are just as married, even though I wasn't wearing a suit. And she wasn't wearing a dress, and he wasn't wearing a tuxedo, okay? But there is something about dress. I, I remember years ago, I worked for a high-end consumer electronics company. I was looking for a commissioned salesperson to be able to sell high-end consumer electronics. Kid shows up, literally, shorts and flip-flops. And I'm like, uh, I'm going to ask you to sell a $5,000 stereo system not in shorts and flip-flops. And he says, dude, give me the job and I'll wear whatever you want. Dude, give me the job. I, you, if you know me well enough, you know I'm having issues with this already, right? I give nothing but a hard time and even that is earned, okay? And so needless to say, the young man did not get the job. Isn't that something? In fact, I don't know what he said after that because it was like Charlie Brown speak to me. Wah, 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 after that, I mean, it, it, the interview was quick except for the assistant manager that I pulled in and made him suffer through the beating that I delivered to this kid because he showed up inappropriately dressed for a professional environment, right? So let me ask you something this morning. Are you dressed appropriately? Do you have a Sunday smile that's different than your Monday smile? And which of them is the real smile? I mean, Little Orphan Annie said it best, right? You are never fully dressed without a smile. 
And there's something about being dressed for certain occasions or for going out. There's, you know, there's, there's a saying, the clothes maketh the man, right? The, the, you dress for success. And, and I, I would agree with that to a level. But I would challenge you this morning about how you dress and what that says about you, not on the outside, but as a mark of a believer. I used to do a lot of international traveling, and one of the jobs that I, that I used to do was leading teams and taking them places, and I used to really enjoy playing a game called American, Australian, or European. And, and this is what you do. Now, you're, you're probably not going to identify with this, but what you do is you sit in an international airport somewhere, and you silently judge people for the way they look. Now, I know you're probably not accustomed to that at all. But the, the way the game was played was you watch these people to see how they're dressed, and you have to figure out before they speak, are they American, European, or Australian? Now, to be fair, a backpack-toting vagabond looks the same, dirty and tired, and you don't want to be seated next to them for an international flight. Trust me. They smell bad. I know this. They're teenagers who backpack Europe, and they don't shower. It's, it's, I don't know what happens on the other side of the pond, but it does, right? And I know this because I've sat next to them on more than one occasion. I also sat next to uh, uh, several people from Africa, and I'm just going to be honest with you. People, you can tell people if they live in the urban centers or out in, in the villages. They either smell like a campfire or they don't for 16 hours. I'm not the only one who does this, right? So we play this game, American, European, or Australian, right? And you have to try to figure out what they wear. And how would you do it? You look at their clothing, the brands that their shoes are, the, the types of shirts, even the way they wear their clothes. Because i got to be honest with you, man freeze, I'm not into. If you're unfamiliar with this, ladies, you know what capri pants are, right? Ladies? Yes? Okay. Men should not wear them. I don't care. All right? Below the knee is a man free. All right? That, and, and so, so it, they, it was hard because oftentimes you go, European, and then the guy say, hey, what's up, man? I'm like, oh, my gosh. He's East Coast. You know? And so we do this, don't we? We judge people by the way they dress, and it's one of those things we put ourselves out there by our appearance, don't we? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning is understanding, before we get too deep into the, the ideals of what we look at on the outside, is understanding that as, as a man in his mid-40s, that I can't dress like a, a man in, in my 20s anymore. And part of the reason is, is that fashion has changed in 25 years. Do you all know this? Men, if you can relate with this, men, help me out. Um, I don't know what they did to t-shirts in the last couple of years, but the sleeves got shorter, and it, I feel like I'm being strangled. Like, all the necks are up here now. And I'm like, I'm not hiding hickeys, okay? I don't know what's going on here, but, but I, th this, is, this is an extra large shirt that I've always worn, and now it feels like, you know, it, it got washed in, in cold or what. I don't know. Uh, ladies, uh, let, let me just ask you this. Moms especially, looking out to, ne to next week being Mother's Day, when did you stop dressing like a single lady and like a mom? Did, did something change? No, no, my shorts are still just as short as they always were. Is that, is that what you're telling me? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? I mean, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just going to make an observation. You have been somewhere with a young mom in your proximity, Walmart, okay? And you have noticed that perhaps maybe that's not an appropriate outfit for a young mother. Because as a young mom, you would not dress that way anymore, right? You're I mean, they call them mom jeans for a reason. Remember those? Okay. They're back though, right? I, why? Ah, the fashion industry. The fashion industry. I'm not here to actually talk to you about external appearances and how you dress and behavioral modification, all that sort of stuff. I just want to get your mind in the right place to understand that, that what Paul is going to tell us here uh, in a moment is, 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 is kind of ties into what Angelo shared with us last week out of 1 Samuel chapter 17, which was a wonderful sermon about David and Goliath and the transformation of a, of a ruddy shepherd to a, a royalty, right? From runt to royalty, David went to. And, and if you were to back up to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you would see that there was a point by which God told Samuel to, to gather the, the house of Jesse and all the sons and, and to pick one of them to be the next king of Israel. 
and he presents all of his sons, and Jesse wants to take the handsome older one who's taller than everybody else. And First Samuel 16, 7 tells us very clearly that, that do not look upon him like man looks upon him because, because, because God does not look on the outward appearance. He looks upon the heart. And we have to, as, as believers in Christ Jesus, we have to translate that transformation of what God has done in our heart ought to actually be transmitted externally as well. Not just about how we dress, but how we put on the armor of God every day. How we put on the clothing of, of a saint, not a sinner. How we present ourselves in every situation, especially the challenging situations, to, to, so somebody can look at us and just go, there's not just something different about you. You don't just look differently. You are different. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't clean up that stuff on the outside if it's not real on the inside. And if it's not real on the inside, it's going to be very evident on the outside, especially if you proclaim the name of Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And so this morning, Christ follower especially, I want you to pay attention to what we're saying. And for those of you who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, I want, I want you to listen to this as well. Because this is a message of what God can and wants to do in your heart and in your life and to transform you from the old self, as Paul would say, to the new self. I so appreciate what Selena said this morning. I didn't know that story. I, I, I should have just taken the offering right after that and just said, man, amen, Selena's right. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 was a wonderful verse. But, it, but to, to hear that new believer say that something has been transformed in me, that what I used to do, I don't want to do anymore. And I'm not totally sure why I don't want to do that, but I know God's doing something in my heart. And so if he's going to do something in my heart, it actually needs to be external as well. Christianity is not a secret belief. And we need to stop treating it like we're some sort of secret society. The name of Christian should be all over us. We talk about the worries of the mark of the beast as it's spoken about in Revelation, when really people ought to see the mark of Christ upon us in every single day, not just in crisis, but in joy and happiness. The old self ought to be put away, and the new self should be put on, as Paul says over and over, especially in the, the books of, of, of Ephesians and Colossians. And so let me ask you, the first question this morning is, is when is a believer transformed from old to new? When, when do I stop being who I used to be and becoming who Christ has made me to be? When, when does his death and his resurrection and the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of my sins alter me fundamentally? When does it change me? And there's three answers to that question. I think first and foremost, instantly, we are changed in an instant. Secondly, we are gradually transformed. And thirdly, we're ultimately transformed. And we're going to explain this to you just briefly because we're going to move a little bit forward. But when we are transformed as a believer, it happens instantaneously. For those of you who have been baptized, particularly in a church that immerses in baptism, we often quote Romans chapter 6, verse 4, that says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Baptism is that picture of an of a outward expression of an inward decision that has been made, that I have been transformed, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And I have been buried with him in baptism and risen to walk in newness of life. This would happen in Paul's time when they would be down by the river and John's over there baptizing and Jesus is baptizing. And nobody needs a bath except the dirty. And so the Jews would all watch and wonder what's happening here. Why are these people being baptized? And the word baptized means to be put into like a ship being put into the sea when it sinks. And then it's being miraculously raised up and it no longer is, is, is sinking. It's alive and floating and doing what it's supposed to do. And they would give them these new robes when they would come out of the water. And they would wear these new robes. And it was a symbol of a Christian. It was a symbol of a follower of this Jesus. Or, the, or as the book of Acts would say, the followers of the way. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are instantly a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Isn't that good news? That means that I don't have to be. And am not bound to be who I once was, the sinner. I am now a saint saved by grace in the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm instantly changed from old to new. I'm also gradually changed from old to new as I grow in the likeness of Christ. 
I don't just suddenly know everything. There are very few people that I know who have studied the Bible and knew so much about the Bible before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, I've got to know this, and I have to understand this, and I've got to be answering these questions. And while I love my Methodist brothers and sisters, the ideal of confirmation classes and stuff like that misses a point to where I can be educated without belief. I can know a lot, but know absolutely nobody. I need to know Jesus, not just his words. I need to know him, and he made himself knowable to me gradually as I get to know him through his word and being around other believers. And I'm transformed from old to new, not just instantaneously, but as I get around people who know Jesus and love Jesus and follow his word. That's why it's so important to me, and it breaks my heart to hear that the Barna Survey Company out there says that regular church attendance, listen to this, regular church attendance is considered twice a month. Now, I don't know what you do only two times a month, but I guarantee you're not very good at it. I guarantee you it doesn't really shape you that much. In fact, I only pay rent once a month. It would really make me unhappy to do it twice a month. Church is on the other side of that. I wish we did have a place where we could be here more often and do more things. But, but just to be perfectly fair with you, especially those of you who have proclaimed the name of Christ, for you to say, I'm going to show up to church twice a month and call it good and dislocate your shoulder, pat yourself on the back, I'm really not that impressed. And you shouldn't be either. Well, I can worship Jesus wherever I am. No, you, you can't worship Jesus wherever you are. You should worship Jesus wherever you are. I'm not talking about your ability. I'm talking about your willingness. Well, I don't like going to that church. You know, some of those people are rude. They judge me for the way I dress. Judge them back. Australians. I mean, I don't know. Ephesians chapter 4, another one of Paul's letters tells us in verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to, be, and to put on the new self create, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You don't just suddenly become righteous and holy of yourself. Jesus makes you righteous and holy through himself. But you don't suddenly get that way. You become that way. You are being transformed. You are being set apart. You are being, churchy word, sanctified to be like Christ. And the more you look like Jesus and the less you look like yourself and certainly the less you look like the rest of the world, you are gradually being transformed from the old self to the new self. Thus, if you're a new believer and you mess up, and you will. We get it. You ever watch a kid try to learn how to walk? When he falls down, you pick him back up. But when he's 17, he ought to know how to do this by now. Right? Some of you have proclaimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for more than a decade now. You probably couldn't tell me the last verse you memorized. It might have been John 3, 16 when you were an unbeliever in VBS when you were five years old. You're not gradually conforming and becoming in the likeness of Christ if you're not exercising that muscle, that atrophy is set in in such a way. And so if you're, if you're wanting to say, well, I'm, not, I'm just not feeling the Lord's presence. I'm just not growing in him. You're not doing anything to exercise that. That's on you. That's not on God. Uh, now, listen, God can do a whole lot. Trust me. He did a whole lot for you. And I'm not one of those that believes that God helps those who help themselves, but I am one who believes that if you sit on your backside long enough, nothing will happen. Trust me on that. And you will watch life and the transformation of life pass you by. And being made in the likeness of Christ, gradually becoming who he is, saying that I have been taught, I am learning, and I'm not just listening, I'm also obeying. I'm not just being a hearer of the word, I'm being a doer of the word. And finally, we're ultimately transformed from old to new as we are renewed by the knowledge of God and the righteously bear the image of our creator. It is in the garden where God speaks into existence all things, and he says, let us make man in our image. 
and he does so so eloquently and so beautifully that we are the image bearers of God everywhere that we go. And what happened when sin entered into our lives is that we began to bear the wrong image. We began to bear the image of the world, Father, who is the devil, a liar, whose job is to kill, steal, and destroy, and he has nothing for you but hate. That is not the image we ought to bear, but Colossians 1, 9 through 11 tells us this, and so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled, listen to this, with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, not the world, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, you should underline that word, increasing, in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. All right, so here's the thing. My dad quit school after the eighth grade. He was raised in L.A., Lower Alabama. And in Lower Alabama, eighth grade was a pretty high education. But he quit school after that. And he went to work. He was born in 1945. He went to work. And he learned on the job, how to be one of these gas pipeline construction people. You see these things out in the middle of nowhere that make a lot of noise and pump gas in? Dad does that, okay? And I remember being in high school, working on trigonometry and having a hard time not understanding this. And I'm not kidding you. This is my dad with an eighth grade education. Oh, son, that's easy. Let me show you how to do this. Dude went and got a set of blueprints and rolled them out on the table. And then he went and got a, a photo, a 35-millimeter photo, and he says, this right here is what this looks like when it's done. Now, what's the distance from here to here? I'm like, what in the world is this crazy? How does he know this? Because he spent 50 years learning from someone who was teaching him the laws and the basic of it is always sine over cosine, tangent, whatever that is. I'm not a math person. Dad was. And a man with an eighth grade education didn't need a formal diploma just like you don't need a seminary degree to read this book and do what it says. But when you choose not to, when you elect not to by choice, you don't grow in the righteousness of God. And the mysteries that are out there for you are revealed right here. That's not to say there's still not some things he's keeping from us. But you're trying to get to the hard stuff when you can't even get through the easy stuff. One plus one equals two, two plus two equals four, and the coefficient of sliding friction is 32 feet per second. You don't get there quickly. It takes many years. Is that right, Peach? Am I right? Just checking. You don't get there instantaneously. You get there a little bit at a time. You are gradually. Your life as a Christ follower is a constant state of learning about this Jesus who loves you so much, whose image you bear. And when you become like him, you are the image bearer of God. And you are the image bearer of God to a lost and dying world who needs not to see you or how you dress or how you look. They need to see Jesus. And you're not showing them Jesus with a kindergarten education after 15 years of being a Christ follower. Do you understand that? That's why I look and I hurt and I cry and I pray over so many who have claimed to walk with the Lord for as long as they have. But in the seven years of this church gathering, I see this stagnated growth. And I don't see it because we don't offer this program or we don't have this or we don't have this. Listen, we're not a perfect church and I'm happy about that. I truly am because that means that we got plenty of work to do and God could work and do a great thing. But I'm going to tell you something. If we only got two things and you don't choose either one of those, I don't know what offering you ten different things is really going to help you out. It's not about what we offer. It's about what you choose. It's about what you choose. You remember that? Whenever, whenever mama would cook dinner, there's two things to eat today. What I made and what's on the table. If you choose not to eat it, you can go hungry. But don't blame anybody else for your hunger pains. When the buffet has been set for us, come and dine. If, if anybody hears my voice and welcomes me in, I'll come and dine with them. And so I hurt sometimes, church. Not because of what we don't offer, 
but because of what's left on the table. I don't know about you, but if there's bacon still on that table over there, I can't tell you the disappointment that I have in my heart. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. And in doing so, we're going to answer this question, are you properly dressed? Are you properly dressed this morning? Paul wrote to the Colossians, Greek society, very messed up in a lot of ways. They've got a church going here. There's some, some folks on the outside that are saying, oh, you've got to do it this way because we don't go to your church, but we'll tell you how church is supposed to look. Does that sound familiar at all? I, I love that. I really do. I love that. I love when somebody says, no, I'm not a part of your church, but let me tell you what your church is supposed to look like. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. You want to kick my dog too? Colossians chapter 3, Paul is actually in the second of two lists that he writes. And in the, in the, in the Greek uh, education, what would happen is they were fond of lists because lists kind of had these, these do's and don'ts to them. There was a simplicity to it. And, and we'll get to the first list, but we're going to start with the second list in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. When I ask you, are you properly dressed, I want you to consider for a moment what Paul says using this put on and take off, old self, new self. And he says, Put on then, in verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now listen, this letter is not being written to those who do not believe. This letter is not being written to those who are seeking to know more, just knowledge of, of this Jesus and this God and this, this literally what they would consider a cult called Christianity. This letter is not written to those people to give them clarity on what they're searching for. This letter is written to those who said, I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died, that he rose three days later, and that his blood paid for my sins, and I'm forgiven because I believe that. Now, I don't know much of anything else, but I do know that, and I do know it's true. And so I'm being gradually and ultimately transformed into who this Jesus is so I can properly bear his image because he is changing me from what the world has, has dirtied and sullen to a new creation in Christ. And so what Paul writes this then is, is he tells us, first thing, is how is transformation possible? How is it possible that I don't have to be categorized by who I used to be or more so, men, especially this is you, you who, what I do, right? I'm going to tell you something. There's no greater identity crisis for a man than to lose his job. Because in our culture, when a man loses his job, he loses who he is. It's a shame. It truly is a shame. Because the first thing's out of your mouth, and I've been training myself for this for years, when someone says, John, what do you do for a living? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a devoted husband. I'm working on being a pretty good dad. And, oh, I, I also pastor a church. Uh, my, my, my what I do for a living is way down the road. What makes me want to live is up high. And that's my Lord Jesus Christ, my beautiful wife, the children I've been blessed with, and my church. But you lose your identity. And I've been there, guys. You don't know where, what side is up. Because in that question, what you hear is, how do you make money? How do you provide for your family? What a loser you are. You know, what? it stinks. And I don't know what unemployment is paying now, but I can tell you what it paid about 20 years ago, and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to get my dignity back. It wasn't enough to get my identity back. But when I put all my things in that, I was doomed to failure. And so how is transformation possible? How can I go from old to new? Well, there are four things here that I want you to see. First of all, God chose us. Now, I would say, say that out loud. God chose me. Say, God chose me. Now, I want you to understand what that statement says. Is that God could have made a lot of different decisions. He could have decided to or not to forgive my sins. He could have decided to or not to pull me in. But God chose me. Now, there is some theology here that some people may get a little uncomfortable with about the elect or the chosen or the predestined. I got the answer for that. I'm not going to tell you. You decide that on your own, okay? But I'll tell you this. There is not anything you can do on your own to get to the good graces of God. It is, must be by his invitation that he invites us. And so when Paul uses this word, God's chosen ones, or in some of your translations, maybe the elect, 
what he's really saying is those that God foreknew were going to choose him, he extended an invitation to them. And he chose them to say, I want you to be on my side. I want you to be restored fully back to creation. I want you. Romans chapter 2, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He says that to us to help us to understand that it was always God's plan, that he was going to choose humanity, that he was going to restore humanity. And that means some people are going to choose to follow him and some people are going to reject him. Now, is there a deeper part of that theology in there? Where, where, where God chooses some and not others? I, honestly, I really can't tell you. T- today I can tell you yes, tomorrow I can tell you no. But I can tell you this, I, I don't believe that there is a God who created anyone with the purpose of suffering eternity in a real place called hell. I do believe that God has chosen us. Now, in context, where he's speaking to, particularly, was to the Israelites. And he said, I didn't choose you because you were the most. I didn't choose you because you were the best. In fact, you were the least of the people. And I chose you to be an example to the rest of the world. That if I can do anything with you, I can do a whole lot with the rest of the world who's not as bad as you are. That's who we are. If God can choose me and do something with me, he can do a whole lot with you. As Paul would say, the chief among sinners, I know my sin. I know my shortcomings. I know what a bad person I used to be but I'm being gradually and ultimately transformed into the image of God and in his likeness because I have accepted him. Secondly, God set us apart. That word holy or holiness means to be set apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Transformation is capable for the life of a believer. Because God chose us and because God set us apart. And he set us apart like this. When you go and you work at McDonald's, you work behind the counter at McDonald's, right? You you don't work out in the parking lot. I mean, no, that's Chick-fil-A. That's a different story. You, you, You don't work out in the parking lot and you don't wear a different uniform. You wear the uniform that the company provides. That's how we know that you work here, right? That's why I do. I laugh at Walmart because every time you see somebody and it says, how may I help you? It's on their backs. They're walking away. I don't know how that works. How may I help you? You know, I don't know how that works. But God set us apart as Christians and he didn't say, okay, now you are forgiven. My son has died for you. The most precious thing in my entire world is my son, Jesus Christ. I sent him to the cross to die for you. So now that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what you got to do. Go do whatever you want. Just do it someplace else. Don't let anybody see it. Publicly on Sunday morning, put your Sunday smile on. And the rest of the week, don't tell anybody that you're a Christ follower. Because I don't want anybody getting confused. No, no, no. God says you are set apart. You are holy. You are special. And because of that special designation, you should behave accordingly. That transformation was made possible not just so that you could get off the hook for some of the bad things you keep doing because that's the old life, not the new life that you've been called to and risen from the dead from. Instead, you were set apart, and that's how transformation has happened because God sets us apart. He also, and get this, I know this is a, this is a mind blower, but he loves us. I Consider that for just a moment. God loves us. We are able to shed all things, the, 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 the chains that weigh us down in sin, we were able to tear all those things apart because God loves us. Let me, let me just make this simple for you. I know you're here. I'm sure you're very lovable. And I say that because I know me. Can you just, for a second, can you just get there emotionally and intellectually to a place to say, man, if this God is who he says he is, 
And if I put him in a place to where he's so far away from me that I just can't be in his presence and, and, and I, I just don't measure up. Because that, that's where a lot of people are. Oh, I believe in God in the distance. But if you can draw him in a little bit closer and realize that it's not you drawing him in, it's him drawing you in through prayer, through love for Christ. John chapter 13 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christ follower, if you have taken the old and put on the new, the evidence of that is not that you've got a nice pretty white shirt on, it's that you keep his commandments. They will know that they are Christians by how they live, by how they serve, by how they follow my commandments, how they love one another. Christ follower, know that you have been called out, set apart, because God loves you. And finally, and this is a, this is a fun one here, because God forgave us. Hmm. I think this is where many people reject Jesus Christ. I think they reject Jesus Christ on the basis of there is nothing that I need forgiven for because I am who I am, and I like who I am. Now, I wish that were true, but I've met a lot of people who are stubborn, who are prideful, who are wounded, who are hurting, who do not believe that they need to be forgiven for anything because as far as they're concerned, their life is their own, it is their business, and this nosy God and all of his little Christian minions out there need to mind their own business. And it's sad, and it's disappointing, but it is pride, it is arrogance, and I actually believe that it's fear because at some point, I believe God's presented himself to people in such a way that all they have to do is acknowledge his existence and his great love for them and what he has done for them. And if they do that, then everything's going to have to change. And they don't want that. Your father, the devil, doesn't want that either. He wants you to continue to wallow in your own self-pity. But God forgave us, making it possible for the old to go away and the new to come. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Grace is nothing more than an undeserved gift. There's not a reason for God to forgive you other than the fact that he loves you tremendously, that he sets you apart, and that he chose you. And he knows that forgiveness is necessary. In fact, he was ready to forgive from the very beginning. Whenever they were in the garden, and he said very clearly to the serpent that one day that, that, that you're head will be crushed by the heel of my son. It will be forgiveness for all mankind, the redemption of sin through grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ. I just want to say for those of you out here this morning who are not believers in Jesus Christ, I'm not sure why God does what he does. I'm not sure why he offers what he offers. I'm not sure that I can look at your life and say, yeah, this person is is hateful, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're mean, they're on a path of self-destruction, they hurt others and themselves as often as they possibly can, yet God loved them so much that he wanted to forgive them. I speak on behalf of the Lord on this because of what his word says, it has nothing to do with the way that I see you or the way that you're dressed, whether it be a smile or anything else, it has everything to do with God peering right into your very heart. You can clean whatever you want up on the outside, but on the inside, he's going to look at you, and he wants to do an amazing thing. He wants to transform you. So let's say you gave your life to Christ today. Let's say you gave your life to Christ five years ago. Let's say it was ten years ago. What does that look like? How could I possibly know that? Well, in these passages, I see several things, and I'm going to kind of briefly go over some of these things. But I want you to consider as we kind of go through this list of things that these are like clothing being placed on. You see, we were stripped down to nakedness because that's how we will stand one day before the Lord. There will be nothing that shields us from the truth, and he'll see everything. And you can't put on an extra cloak or you can't hide. You can't put on sunglasses and think he can't see you. God is going to see you and every part about you. He's going to see every little thing inside your heart, everything you ever did, every thought you ever had, every action you took place, every sin, every opportunity that you had to forgive and didn't take, every opportunity. God's going to witness all those things. He's going to see those things. But for a Christ follower, this is what we ought to be able to see as we're gradually and ultimately being transformed. We should be able to see this. 
A Christ follower has a compassionate heart. A defining characteristic of a transformed life is our care and compassion for others inside and outside of the body of Christ. It's tough sometimes to hear Christians brag about what they won't do for somebody else. Well, I'm not going to do that. That person wronged me. That person's lazy and not doing anything. Listen, I'm not saying there aren't limits and there's not tough love. I'm just saying that when there's no compassion in the heart of the Christ follower, they're not maturing in Christ, quote, putting on the old clothes and trying to make them look like they're new. Kindness, the kindness that Christ showed us should be reflective in how we treat others. Romans chapter 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It ought to be what we do with one another within the body of Christ, that we are kind to one another to an extent by which we lose ourselves and show more of Christ. Jesus Christ did not gain anything by being kind to you other than showing you how to do it. He was whole and complete in himself, and anything that you do does not grow him up anymore. He is always righteous and holy. And so when we model that, when we become in the likeness and the image of him, we demonstrate kindness in such a way because it's meant to lead us to repentance. Why do we do some of the things we do as Christ followers? Why are we good neighbors? Why are we kind to those who are are less fortunate as we are? It's the kindness that we show because Christ kindly showed his life for us. Then there's humility, not self-loathing. Humility is one of those things that's, that's show, not tell. And inside the body of Christ, we shouldn't have people running around saying, well, I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this. That's different than volunteering because we like volunteers. What I'm talking about is boasting in all of your skills and all the things you are and everything that you've done. Don't tell me those things. Show me. I I don't want to hear about all that you can do if I don't ever see you do it. I could be a better friend, but I'm not. I could be someone who prays on Sunday morning, but I don't. I could be someone who greets at the back door, but I don't. I could be, I could be, I could be. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, but you didn't. Don't show, don't tell me. That's not what humility looks like in the body of Christ. Humility in the body of Christ actually just does those things before or without anybody even saying, good job, boy, way to go. They're done because they need to be done because they've put on the humility. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. We do things in the body of Christ because they're right to be done, and they need to be done. And they're part of the clothing that we wear of the new self. Then there's meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is is power under control. Oftentimes we use the illustration of a a bit in a horse's mouth. Uh, A 1,000-pound horse can be controlled by a 50-pound child pretty easy just by pulling on that. The horse could at any point lose his mind and throw the child off or run off and do whatever, but he has been trained properly. This power is under constraint and control, and there's no greater example of that than Jesus Christ, who meekly went to the cross, knowing full well that he could call down legions of angels to rescue him, to take away all these people who were trying to harm him. And just because he could didn't mean that he should. And he knew that in meekness he would go to the cross and he would demonstrate humility in doing so for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you, says Jesus, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hey, I know that you have a lot of power to do a lot of things. I know you have a lot of strength to do a lot of things, but carry my yoke. And that yoke will restrain you from letting that power and authority overcome humility and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Patience and long-suffering. Do y'all even want to talk about this this morning? Patience, what an interesting thing. Proverbs tells us, whoever slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Christians, let me tell you something. I had a wonderful conversation earlier. This, this, is, this is what, when I go back to twice a month, for about 45 minutes, and, and, and you're blowing up at home, and you're blowing up at work, and you're blowing up on your wife and your kids and everything else, when, when you skip church for a while, not pandemic-related, and your world starts, do you get frustrated about just the littlest things? Do you get testy about just the littlest things? 
you get upset about just the littlest things. You bark at people, maybe more than what you used to. Would you like to know what that is? You, you put dirty clothes back on, and you wonder why you smell bad. You, you put on the old self, which meant you took off portions of the new self, and you're not renewed by the transforming of your mind. We should be patient. Anger is certainly an emotion. We need to be angry about the right things. The Proverbs tells us, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but who is hasty temper exalts folly. Y'all go to a church business meeting in your old life? Hear people get all riled up. Start calling people names. Yep, that's what I do. That's when I'm really happy there aren't visible cameras. But if you happen to move and go to a church, go to the one with visible cameras just to hear people It's a shame, but it's true, isn't it? See, here's what we miss out sometimes as Christ followers in this new suit. You're going to mess up. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to make a decision that's a bad decision, a poor decision, that's not going to reflect Christ in your life. And I have two options. I really do. It's black and white. I can blow up on you and call you every name in the book and chastise you and just drive you in your direction. Or I can be patient and long-suffering and say, I love you. I don't like that that happened. It doesn't reflect Jesus Christ. Let's work on this together. Let me tell you something. There's some of the most difficult things in life to do. And the body of Christ in your life is an event of sanctification. And I think we just don't react right when trouble comes. Boom! Jesus is our example. Forbearance. Transform life exhibits godly character by holding back judgment through grace. That God shows his love for us, that while we were sinners, he still died for us. We forbear one another's burdens because God chose us, because he forgave us, because he loves us. And if God does that for you, he should do that for me and you. And we should exhibit that in a new self. And finally, forgiveness. Forgiveness ought to be our default. And the reason why forgiveness ought to be our default, because we're forgiven. It's not, there's no deep theology in that. Woo, God forgave me. That means I can judge everybody. No. No. God forgave you because he loves you. And, and when, we, when we, we go from being the offended to the retaliator, we're not demonstrating the forgiveness that God has demonstrated for us because while we were still sinners, he, he died for us. He forgave us before we, before we even asked for that forgiveness, before many of us were even born. But he says that if we will ask for that, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let me ask you this morning, what clothes are you wearing? I want you to listen to, the, to this just for a moment. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. This was the first list that Paul put out there. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and, and its practices. Don't tell me you're different. I don't lie anymore. Yeah, cheat on my taxes. It's, it's interesting that he would tell believers not to lie, one another in the, to lie to one another in the church, isn't it? You, you know why that is? Because when somebody lies to you, trust is eroded immediately. And when you're in a church where you can't trust people to open up your life, then relationships don't happen the way they should. The new clothes, however, are found in chapter 14 and verse 14 of Colossians 3. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The new close is the Sunday smile that shows up on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And the reason is because a new creation bears the name of Jesus Christ always. You don't turn your name tag around when you're off duty. That's not how it works. You are always and constantly. And so if, if you are wearing the new clothes, you should look lovely. Because and above all things, put on love. And love is the belt that holds on all these new clothings that are there. Ladies, you know as well as I do, the accessories matter, right? And love is the accessory that matters more than anything else because it holds everything and stops it from falling off. If you would consider the way they used to do things, the old clothes just kind of hung there, and this belt was cinched up around them. Finally, it would be peaceful. Warren Wiersbe says that peace is like an umpire. When we play the game right and obey the will of God, we have his peace within us. But when we step out of his will, we lose his peace. We should be peaceful in all that we do. Things should not rattle and rock us the way that they do the rest of the world. Because what we realize is, is that we have peace of God and peace with God because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Peace brings us to a place of thanks, thankfulness. And we've adopted an attitude of thankfulness in response to being at peace with God. We understand his will. We don't wonder what does God want for my life because we're right there in it all the time in his word. Also be harmonious. Listen, and this is the, the final point I want to make this morning. The old and the new do not coexist. They cannot coexist. We cannot be in harmony with the world and be in right relationship with Jesus Christ at the same time. If you know what harmony is, it's several different notes saying in the right key, in the right pitch, at the right time, together. And when you put them all together, they sound beautiful and harmonious. But when one sings out of key or out of tune or out of touch, then what happens is it's you're no longer in harmony, and that beautiful song just got really, really ugly really, really fast. And what we do as Christ followers on Sunday and on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday is that we try and we go... We try to go see harmony in the world, not remembering that we bear the name of Jesus in all things that we do. This is why we must really watch what this progressive Christianity is doing to our world. There is no such thing. I don't know what we're trying to progress to when perfection has already been placed on the cross for us. There's nothing more to progress. Jesus is it. And finally, should also be reverent, as I said. And so this morning, I just simply ask you this. Are you properly dressed? John 3.30 reminds us that he must increase and I must decrease. If you see the world's labels on me, what you really ought to see is Jesus on me. This morning, I want to ask you if you'd consider a makeover. As the band comes up and we sing, would you consider a makeover? Maybe as a Christ follower, you need to change clothes. Maybe as a non-Christ follower, it's time for you to take off the old and put on the new. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you and we bless you, Lord, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, I understand that for many that this is...